I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. Coming up on today's program, Charles J. Shields will join us. He'll talk about the life of Kurt Vonnegut. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. without the works of Kurt Vonnegut, the renowned author whose work and humanity have influenced generations of readers. But despite the often autobiographical nature of much of his work, few may know the real Vonnegut. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Charles J. Shields. Mr. Shields is the noted biographer whose previous work includes Mockingbird, a portrait of Harper Lee, which was on the New York Times bestseller list. His latest release, And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, A Life, is the first biography of the author, and he joins today to discuss the life of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, Mr. Shields, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and how did you actually become interested in him as a a subject for a biography? Well, I was in college uh, in the late 60s and uh, draft eligible. Uh, The Vietnam War was going on. In fact, I was in the first draft lottery. And we were all young, disenchanted college-age people at that time, wondering where our country was going and what our role should be. And Vonnegut burst on the scene in 1969 with Slaughterhouse-Five, which turned the nature of war and heroism and uh, duty to country on its head. It wasn't a bitter book. It wasn't an unpatriotic book. It just expressed the bewilderment that uh, anyone caught up in a, in a huge cataclysm like war, world war, might feel. And that book was embraced by many people my age. And Vonnegut is still read. My nephew, who's in his early 20s, has all of Vonnegut's books, loans them out to his friends. So he's being read by the third generation. And this was really something I, I wanted to explore when I was casting around for a biographical subject. I wanted someone who hadn't been written about before um, and also someone who had had a great impact on American culture. And also, I like writing about people from my own era because it helps me understand my own life better. My first biography for adults was uh, Mockingbird, a portrait of Parper Lee, which discussed the, the famous novel To Kill a Mockingbird and who the author is. So Vonnegut uh, fit all those you know, criteria uh, about being new and fresh and being, having a big impact. The problem was getting to him, uh, and that was, that was something of a challenge. And I understand that he initially was uh, reluctant when you first approached him, and then thereafter um, persistence sort of paid off. It did. Yeah, I I sent him a letter um, saying that I wanted to do a biography of him, that I thought it was strange that he had 14 books in print and had been writing for half a century and there hadn't been a full-fledged biography. And as it turned out, he was a little bit miffed, as a matter of fact, that there was no biography of him. There were a lot of, you know, scholarly books, a lot of literary criticism about him as a postmodernist novelist, but nothing about his life, uh, only a few pages, you know, introducing every one of these books. So I sent him a letter and said I, I wanted to do a biography, and he replied. And 
said, uh, well, actually, what he sent me actually was a big drawing of himself. And underneath it said, um, this is a portrait of me demurring on your offer to be my biographer. Okay. <laughs> so I propped that up on, on the mantle. And uh, my wife pointed out that demurring was not a very strong word. I mean, a, a wordsmith is aware of every word he or she uses. It wasn't like, absolutely not, don't do that. So I wrote him again, and I said, look, give me a second chance. Uh, you're a Midwesterner, and I'm a Midwesterner, and you were in public relations, and my father was in public relations. Um, you are a former journalist. I'm a former journalist. We have so many things you know, that we could talk about, and also you have a son about my age. And then I concluded kind of immodestly. I said, listen, I'm the guy for the job. I'm a good writer and I'm a good researcher. And then I waited to see what he would say. And he sent back a postcard about 10 days later. Um, I flipped it over, and on the other side was a little drawing of himself. And above his head was just one word, okay. And that was the beginning of our relationship. Um, so over the next eight months, we um, – uh, traded letters. He would call me. I went out to New York a couple of times. In fact, I was one of the last people to see Vonnegut alive. He, he fell outside his home shortly after I left him on March 14, 2007. Was it surprising to you, uh, as it was to him, that there really hadn't been any biography written about him? Well, it was surprising to me, but, but strangely, it wasn't surprising to him because, you see, Kurt felt like eggheads and critics had never really appreciated him. He, for his entire life, believed that he was being written off as a cult author, you know, as a, a sci-fi guy, off-trail, you know, outer fringe. And uh, we were walking together down the sidewalk uh, last time I saw him, and I said, you know, I have to tell you that my editor's first reaction to this book was, Kurt Vonnegut, isn't he kind of a cult author? And Vonnegut shook his head and he said, I still get a lot of that. So, he, you know, he was convinced that uh, he was not liked by establishment critics. And frankly, he wasn't surprised that nobody had done a comprehensive biography of him. And this despite really his best-selling books that transcended the sci-fi genre. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, Slaughterhouse-Five is often pointed to as one of the 100 greatest novels of the 20th century. And it really has practically nothing to do with science fiction. Um, it's, you know, it's uh, very adventurous in terms of its treatment of time. And, you know, to really bone up on the book and understand the underpinnings of it, I read three popular works on physics because I, I figured that him being a science major at Cornell in the 40s, probably a lot of Newtonian stuff had kind of worked its way into the book. And sure enough, you know, when I began to look at the way to the um, Tralfamadorians, the, the, the inhabitants of the planet that he went to in his imagination, the way the Tralfamadorians explained time was very similar to relativity. And, you know, there were other um, things in there that betrayed his or indicated his, his interest in science and um, deep concepts of space and time and things like that. So it, it was a real adventure for me, you know, not only as, a, as a, a literary critic myself and a biographer, but as somebody who loves science. Yeah, so much of his work really had that underpinning of, of science, and that was partly due to his, his upbringing, as, as you mentioned, and had a brother who was a famous scientist as well. And, of course, he had a, a period in which he was uh, studying to be um, something of a scientist as well. So did that drive, you think, a lot of his view of the world? I think it did, um, but where it really came to a focus, where it really came to a head was at General Electric. He was interested in science. He enjoyed it. He, he jumped at the chance 
uh, through his, as a result of his brother's help, uh, he jumped at the chance of taking a job as a public relations person at General Electric. His brother Bernard was there as a physicist uh, working in a lab, and Bernard recommended his younger brother Kurt for this job in the PR office because Kurt had been working for a newspaper in Chicago. And Vonnegut didn't think twice. He and his wife Jane went out to Schenectady to uh, this huge research facility that General Electric had out there. And Kurt was in seventh heaven. Everything was fascinating. His whole job was to walk around with a, you know, a notebook, a reporter's notebook and a pen, and peek in on what everybody was doing. And he, as he said later, General Electric was science fiction. Uh, the things that they were doing there was, were so far in advance of, of the contemporary understanding of, of where science and progress was going. And a really seminal moment for him was when he happened to walk in on a demonstration of one of the first computer-operated machine lathes that, that was going. You know, uh, up until that point, all really, really fine work was done with master machinists and micrometers. And here, a machine had been programmed to turn a lathe and to cut a beautiful turbine blade. He said it looked like a piece of sculpture, and there was no human being involved. And suddenly he saw the possible implications of the direction of all this, which would be that people would invent themselves out of uh, out of a living, and, but on a greater scale, they would invent themselves out of having a purpose. And in his first novel, Player Piano, he asks a question which plagued him for the rest of his creative life, which was, what are people for? Can we get to the point that we are sort of like the uh, uh, Eloy in um, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, where we eat fruit and we swim in the river and we are completely amoral and whatever happens, happens, and everything is provided for us, you know, by some other agency. Could we become just a specimen with no purpose on the planet? And uh, that's something that really fascinated him. And I think, you know, his experience in, in Dresden gave that kind of a macabre um uh, angle too. He saw 60,000 people killed uh, in a surgical bomb strike at night on February 13, 1944. Uh, and people were just, uh, I mean, the firestorm that resulted threw people up into the air. And he spent the next two months as a prisoner of war uh, retrieving the bodies of men, women, and children from basements where they had been suffocated by all the air being taken out. And, uh, you know, if there is an apocalypse, Vonnegut saw it. And that, of course, served as the backdrop for Slaughterhouse-Five and a lot of motivation to write about it. And he had, he had quite a difficulty actually getting around to writing that novel. Yeah, he, he did because he was missing Act Two. I mean, this is what happened, literally. Uh, he's in his bunk in the slaughterhouse. Uh, the, the Germans had converted a, a huge slaughterhouse facility into a prisoner of war camp. And it was comfortable. It was adequate. I mean, the men were in bunks, and they had a pot-bellied stove. He called it a, a cement hog barn that he was living in. Uh, well, on the night of February 13th, they were rousted out of bed, hurried across the yard, and down into a cellar 60 foot below ground, which was a place for curing sides of beef. So they were hanging on tenter hook, hooks down there. So he and all of his fellow prisoners crowded in, sat on the floor, and then the ceiling began to shake. And for the next eight hours, the 8th Air Force and the RAF dropped tens of thousands of tons of bombs on the Dresden railroad yards, the Dresden bridges, uh, anything that would soften up the Germans to make it possible for the Russians to advance further from the east. And when Vonnegut came up eight hours later, Dresden was gone. 
a, a city that was eight centuries old, all Rococo and Baroque architecture, was in flames. And then, as I say, for the next several months, his whole job was retrieving bodies until it just became too ghastly, and the, the basements were uh, filled in and turned into graves, sort of catacombs almost. So what Vonnegut was missing in Slaughterhouse-Five was the middle act. He saw Dresden. He went into a basement. He came out of the basement. Dresden was gone. It was like he had slept through the sacking of Troy. So how does he explain this? And it wasn't until he began thinking about time that he realized that he didn't really have to be beholden to a chronological telling of this story. This didn't have to be another Naked in the Dead. This didn't have to be another uh, From Here to Eternity or Thin Red Line. This could be whatever he wanted it to be. And once he realized he was free from the bounds of time and he could put his character, Billy Pilgrim, anywhere he wanted to in the universe, he began you know, writing a book that expressed the confusion and bewilderment of somebody who's lost, who's, who's lost in a, you know, a, a tremendous conflict. Now we recognize the book as being about post-traumatic stress disorder. But when it came out in 1969, Billy Pilgrim just looked like kind of a tragic clown. At one, you know, one moment he's talking to Rotary, and the next moment he thinks he's in his office, and then somebody says something and he flips out, and he's back in Dresden lying in the snow, or he's back, in the, back at the Battle of the Bulge lying in the snow. And that's typical of people who have flashbacks, who have a great, who've been traumatized. Yeah, in fact, I, I, I tried to uh, liken it to a twisted a strip of paper, you know, a circle of paper twisted into a figure eight, and Billy Pilgrim is constantly thinking that he's making progress in one direction, only to slide back into the other direction and meet himself coming and going. So he's without time. If we don't know the direction of time, then everything is just raw chaos. Well, I mean, certainly the events of World War II would give anyone, certainly there were other authors of the time that really began to question technology and what does it mean for humans and, and our humanity. Do, do you think that it was Vonnegut, like uh, other authors, Rod Serling, of course, being famous among them, saw science fiction as a genre where they could explore societal issues in kind of a broader context? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the great uh, asset, the great benefit of science fiction is that it can, or I should say the great opportunity of science fiction is that it can be powered by ideas. And that's what Kurt wanted to write about. If you look at his books, you know, Cat's Cradle, Sirens of Titan, things like that, they're not plot heavy. They're not character driven. I mean, there aren't really, you know, memorable people in there. It's more the nature of what's going on, that he's taking an idea and toying with it. What if, for instance, um, all the great monuments on Earth had really been built just to uh, encode some kind of language that could be read from outer space? In other words, what if the Great Wall of China and the pyramids and things like that were all part of some language that we didn't understand and we had sort of been instructed to build them that way? Well, it's a fanciful idea, but, you know, it, it – puts you in the deep space and makes you look back at Earth as just one of many millions of habitable planets. And Kurt loved doing that kind of thing. He liked taking ideas and expanding them and exploring them. So that's why, you know, science fiction appealed to him. But as I said earlier in our conversation, he, he really began to resent the fact that, um, as he put it in an angry op-ed piece for the New York Times, he said, you know, I'm tired of my stories being consigned to a special file drawer in editorial offices that looks a lot like a urinal. 
he said, you know, I, the genre I'm writing in deserves more respect. Just because you know how a refrigerator works doesn't mean that you don't belong in the literary community. And um, he eventually, you know, wrote less about, about science fiction and more about his own life. But by then, when like Time Quake came out and, and Galapagos um, in the 70s and the 80s, he was he was really talking more about himself. He was reminiscing. Uh, the fiction side of it was very sketchy. Certainly, in, in the, there's a somewhat alter ego of his, Kilgore Trout, which mm-hmm. originally based on Theodore Sturgeon, right, but uh, right. seemed to be more and more uh, expressing his sort of views of, of the world that these characters were inhabiting. Well, he, well, he was afraid of becoming Kilgore Trout. See, he had Theodore Sturgeon over to his house in the 50s, uh, Cape Cod was uh, Kurt was living on Cape Cod, and he felt really isolated out there. He, he wanted to live in Provincetown, which is a very arty place, and, and it was in the 50s too. But he and his wife Jane couldn't afford to live there, so they lived in uh, a sort of a far-flung place called West Barnstable, which was a town with um, macadam roads and sand paths between the houses. And he was delighted when he heard that Theodore Sturgeon uh, was moving in not too far away. So he had Sturgeon over for dinner, and Sturgeon was exhausted. Uh, he had been on a writing streak trying to make money. He wasn't very widely read, and Sturgeon tried to be cheery and upbeat at dinner and everything, but what Kurt could see was that here was a guy who was a real sort of ham and egger, you know, who was making it from paycheck to paycheck, doing his level best to write great fiction. And he thought, is that what I'm going to become? You know, I'm going to become kind of a, a marginal figure who will write about anything for a buck. Um, not that, you know, Sturgeon sold out, but, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that's out there that's been penned by good authors uh, who did it just for the money and didn't want their name on it. And, you know, Vonnegut was writing ad copy part-time, and he was commuting into Boston to work for advertising agencies. And when he saw, you know, Philip Sturgeon, when he saw Ted Sturgeon that way, he thought, who knows, I might become that man. Well, like many authors of the time, he did ham and egg, bread and butter writing in short stories of, of magazines, and you often time refer to that as his slick fiction that, you know, that he used to fund the books, yeah. right? Yeah, well, you know, those, those magazines were called the slicks. That's what they were nicknamed in the industry because they looked so nice. They were on heavy, glossy paper, and, and they were coffee table magazines. If Kurt had his druthers, he would have written really, you know, wild, uh, over-the-edge stuff for amazing and astounding stories and Argosy, but they didn't pay. I mean, you could write a piece for uh, astounding stories and get paid 95 bucks, or you could write a story for Collier's about a lost puppy, you know, and how it comes back on Christmas Eve or something, and get $750. And $750 in 1953 was equivalent to two months' salary at General Electric. So, you know, he was no fool. He he was a young father with babies in the house. His wife didn't work. And he wrote stuff that would sell, that would sell to a Saturday evening post and things like that, all the while uh, trying to sell some of his his more, um, uh, you know, his, his more creative stuff, his more unconventional fiction. But it... It just wouldn't sell. I mean, it was it was just there was the time wasn't right for it. Well, he, he himself had, uh, as you mentioned, sort of a interesting life. He had a wife and then uh, some dalliances uh, as he became more and more famous, and a couple marriages thereafter. Did did that sort of affect how his fiction or his writing progressed over time? 
It did. Uh, well, his fiction changed for two reasons. First of all, Slaughterhouse-Five was the book that was inside of him for over 20 years. From 1945 to about 1967, he wanted to write that book. He just couldn't figure out how to approach it. So when he finished that book, he said to someone, I feel like some kind of career has ended. That was his best shot, and that was enormously successful. So, you know, he wondered if he could top himself, for one thing. The other thing is that his best editor, his best critic, his counselor, was his first wife, Jane. Jane was a Phi Beta Kappa English major from Swarthmore, and she believed in Kurt. And she read everything he wrote, and she even made suggestions about the covers for his books, his novels. Uh, and so they were a team. But after Slaughterhouse-Five was published in 1969, uh, Kurt took off. Uh, he felt like his dream of being a famous writer had been deferred long enough. He'd paid his dues. He was sick and tired of being in that outpost, West Barnstable, Massachusetts. And he took off for New York. And he took off with a lady 20 years his junior. And he began hanging out at Sardi's and Elaine's and going to plays. And as I put it maybe unkindly in the book, I said he was feeding at the trough of celebrity up to his ears. Uh, after so many years of sacrifice, so much hard work, he had made it. And, you know, in a sense, you really can't blame him. He, you know, authors believe in the American dream as well, that if they work hard enough and they persevere, they will become successful. And that's what Kurt did. He wasn't an engineer. He wasn't a businessman. He was a, a creative type. And finally, he made a lot of money by the pen, and he bought a white Mercedes, and he bought a brownstone on East 48th, and he bought a summer place in the Hamptons and never looked back. You spent a lot of time with him, uh, met with him, chatted with him, saw his letters. What were your impressions of, of Vonnegut as a person? I thought, two, I thought two things about Kurt. I thought, first of all, he was in pain. Uh, the first time I went out to lunch with Kurt, he began talking angrily, resentfully about the way he'd been raised. He felt that his, he was an afterthought in his parents' life, that he was almost kind of a mistake, that he was one of those babies who came along unexpectedly and was always treated as kind of an oddity. That's what he thought. He also resented Bernard, his elder brother. Bernard was was very bright, very capable, much admired, went to MIT, and the only role that Kurt could cut out for himself and his family was being uh, the jokester, the card, the wit. So in a sense, they were sort of like bookends. Bernard, all cerebral. Kurt, all imaginative. And um, he probably would have looked up to Bernard without reservation, except that he felt that Bernard interfered with his life. Kurt wanted to major in English or journalism at Cornell, and Bernard would have none of it. He persuaded their parents that Kurt should major in something technological or something scientific, that that's where the future lay, and that, you know, he would be mistaken to go into something, as Bernard put it, ornamental, like writing. So Kurt dutifully went into science, flunked out, ended up in the Army, and he told me that was Bernard's fault. If it hadn't been for him, I wouldn't have gotten into such a terrible state. Um, so Kurt was an aggrieved person, and secondly, he was a haunted person. Uh, Kurt felt regret. Um, some things, you know, were poor decisions and other things just happened to him, like Dresden. But when I would talk to Vonnegut and, you know, and watch him, I got the sense that something was kind of unreeling behind his eyes, that he was simultaneously in the present, listening to me, nodding. But on the other hand, he seemed to be thinking about something. And it's often said of depressives 
that they go over and over the same episodes again and again, hoping for a different outcome or wishing for an alternative. And I really got the sense that Kurt was going over things in his mind even as he was talking to me. Do you think that the construction of the biography in a way might have been somewhat therapeutic for him? Or... Well, you know what? He was really looking forward to it, and he was. When we got started on it and I went to New York, he began introducing me as to people as my biographer. And he would call me late at night, and I'd pick up the phone at 9.30, and here'd be this gruff voice on the other end, this is Kurt Vonnegut. How's my biography going? And he, was, he wanted it to happen. He felt a kind of urgency about it. Uh, when his second wife, Jill Kremens, began to give him uh, some uh, hard time, really, about the biography and what might be said about him or what might be said about her, uh, he got anxious, and he called me, and he said, help me out with this. So I wrote him a letter, and I said, look, I'll give you the manuscript when I'm finished, and you can take out anything that's hurtful to other people or untrue. And he said, oh, he called me back. He said, oh, you're such a gentleman. This will really help. Uh, but he really wanted this to happen. The the sorry part of it was that after giving me the names of people to interview and sending me letters and pointing me in various directions, he died very very suddenly. And and as I say in the introduction to the book, I sort of felt like it was almost like a comic routine in the sense that, you know, he he took a powder and he left me holding the bag. All those those vaudeville type expressions. Uh, Kurt just disappeared on me all of a sudden. I said, "See you tomorrow," and I never saw him again. And then it was up to me to complete the biography, uh, with the result that instead of taking three years to write it, it took five years to write it, uh, because I was constantly wondering, "Is this right? I better check." It's, it's almost like a plot from one of his books. Yeah, well, it is. You know, you think about this, think about this Charles. He um, uh, fell over the leash of his little dog as he was walking the dog down the flight of steps outside his brownstone. He tripped, pitched forward, and hit his head on the sidewalk, which sent him into a coma. Well, you know, there's a character in Sirens of Titan, last name Roomford, who gets caught in a sort of a time wave out in outer space. And every, you know, every seven years or so, he reappears on Earth walking his dog. And then he's only available for a short time. And then like ectoplasm disappearing, he disappears again. And he'll be back. But, you know, time where he is is not the same as the time here. And Vonnegut disappeared walking his dog. And I'll tell you one kind of creepy thing. Um, I found a letter. I assembled hundreds of letters uh, written by him that he didn't know people had anymore. And in 1975, he wrote a letter to Jane, his first wife, and he said, you know, I have this premonition. I'm going to be killed by a dog. And he was. Um, we are running slightly out of time here. I'm, I'm just wondering if, if you have some final words regarding the life, the work, the, from the times of Kurt Vonnegut. Well, people may detect, well, I hope they will detect in the biography, a split between Kurt Vonnegut, husband, author, father, and Kurt Vonnegut, the countercultural guru and the persona. And it's not that Kurt was a cynic, and he wasn't trying to fool anybody. It's just that I think he was misperceived. What Kurt really was was not a radical. He was more of a reactionary. Kurt wanted to return to an earlier America, the one that he knew as a boy. He wanted to go back to the 1920s when there were shoals of relatives showing up for Thanksgiving, and you could go swimming in the old swimming hole. I mean, there was a certain level of Kurt Vonnegut where he was a real cornball, and he, he believed in um, you know Saturday evening post covers of Thanksgiving dinner. That's the America that he wanted. And if he was angry and upset, it's because he felt that that America was disappearing. 
I, I wish we had more time to chat about the book, and I certainly hope people will go take a look at it. Uh, it's called okay. uh, And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, A Life. And uh, Mr. Shields, I want to thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's uh, really enjoyable. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.